Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And then there is the hot pack treatment. So four packs are to be placed on the customer as directed by the customer. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put my $20 bill back in my wallet here. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is our mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about a wide variety of topics. Today we're focusing on some national park questions. That's right. We'll talk about how much time to budget for a visit to White Sands, followed by some suggestions of things to do over a weekend in Hot Springs, plus a quick overview of the parks on the East Coast. And spoiler alert, there may even be a surprise history channel in this mailbag episode. And some inappropriate laughing, definitely some inappropriate laughing. Before we get started, we wanted to talk a little bit about national park visitation. That is a big topic nowadays. I know the top 10, the visitation has just exploded in the last few years. And some of it has to do with COVID, but it's just continuing. A lot of people go into these parks. Yeah, and it's become an issue for the parks. A lot of them have started the reservation system in the busy months, but the ones that haven't, Boy, the lines to get in, like some of those lines at Yellowstone and Zion, uh, they can just go for miles for people waiting to get in. Yeah, and it changes the way you prepare for a trip, how you plan for it, because some of them went to uh, timed entry reservation systems. A lot of a lot of those have been canceled or stopped, but who knows? If, if the crowds keep up, they might go back to them. Yeah, I hope so. I liked the reservation system because we would get our timed entry for the day like we stopped in Rocky Mountain National Park last summer, and we knew that we could get into the park. And when they don't have the day-use reservation system in effect, some of them, like Arches last month, are turning visitors away as soon as the parking lots are full. Yeah, and when we have gone and used a time entry, then once you're in the park, it does seem a little less crowded. Because they manage the numbers. Absolutely. I think it makes for a better park experience for everyone. And of course, it, you know, it also protects the park in some ways against the, the masses of people and trash and um, all that kind of thing. So, you know, who knows? It's a, it's a topic that the National Park Service is going to have to um, wrestle with for, I think, a, a good long time to come. 
Yeah, but the good news is there are a lot of great national parks that are less visited. Yes, it's interesting. We posted a couple of reels on our Instagram account lately talking about what we consider underrated parks. And and kind of our definition, our loose definition of that is parks that we absolutely love that get 700,000 visitors or less every year. We're not saying these parks aren't as good as the others. They're, they're fantastic and people just don't realize it. That's what <laughs> we mean by underrated. And so, yeah, we're trying to help people know about some of these other places that are just as great to visit. We mentioned Mesa Verde, Pinnacles, Dry Tortugas, Great Basin National Park, Redwood, uh, Kings Canyon, Petrified Forest, Crater Lake. Those are all spectacular parks. And then we asked people what their favorite underrated parks were. And it was interesting to see the responses because, hands down, a lot of people mention North Cascades National Park. And we always see articles about, you know, the least visited national park in the system is North Cascades. And that is very deceiving. It's deceiving for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's more than North Cascades National Park. There's a couple of other National Park Service units adjacent to the park. And they're they're all combined, managed as a unit. So the Park Service kind of thinks of that, the whole complex as the single park. You got Ross Lake National Recreation Area, you've got Lake Chelan National Recreation Area, and then kind of hidden in the middle of all that is North Cascades National Park. Right. And there are no roads that go into North Cascades National Park. There's one dead-end dirt road, um, Cascade River Road, that t- that takes you to a trailhead. But the main highway that runs through the park, Highway 20, it doesn't ever go through any part of North Cascades National Park. And this is where all of the visitors are. So for instance, I saw in 2021 last year, North Cascades National Park, in quotes, that section only got 18,000 visitors, which of course is nothing. But they're not taking into account the entire complex, which sees over a million visitors a year. Right. So It's just a technicality, but the land area around the highway is actually Ross Lake National Recreation Area. Right. But but for all practical purposes, you're in the complex. You're in the national park. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, is because Highway 20 closes in the wintertime due to snow, uh, the visitation numbers are concentrated in, I'd say, late June to early October. So that's when all the crowds are coming in. And... You know, when you drive down Highway 20 in the summer, the the most popular trailheads like Maple Pass and Blue Lake, the trailheads fill up in five minutes. And so people are parked for miles along Highway 20. Now, neither of those hikes are in North Cascades National Park. They're actually in the National Forest. So it is confusing. But I guess the point of all this is to say, for everyone who thinks they're going to go to North Cascades National Park, and there's only going to be 18,000 other visitors there in the year, that's that's not really correct. Yeah, there there will be a lot of other people. Uh, more than a million. <laughs> it's, 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 it's been discovered. It is so, so been discovered. On, on the weekends, in summertime, well, whenever the weather's good, you're going to see a lot of cars. And so we we try when we can. If we're going to go up there, we're going to try to do it midweek, 
Try to go early to the trailheads. Um, you just have to do that. And also, as we have mentioned several times, the trailheads in North Cascades, the, the beautiful trails, are not snow-free until about mid-July. So for everyone who plans their trip in June, they're usually disappointed because you can't even get into the parking lot. It's still full of snow. That's right. So the other park that people mentioned they thought was underrated is White Sands National Park in New Mexico. Yeah, and I would say now it's not underrated (laughs) anymore. It's been discovered. And that's what happens when a National Park Service unit gets named a national park as opposed to a national monument or, or something else. Uh, yeah, the visitation there is starting to explode also. It is. You know, it was steady for years at about five to 600,000 visitors annually from about 2015 to 2019. It was steady, and then it became a national park at the end of 2019. And I just saw the numbers in 2021 had shot up to 800. Yeah, that's still not a, a huge number, but I mean, that's a 33% increase over the previous average. That's that's a lot of visitors. It is a lot of visitors. I also saw that, and this is amazing what a national park designation will do for for an area. In 2021, the park visitors spent over $46 million in the local gateway communities surrounding White Sands. And this was divided up over hotels, restaurants, retail stores, and gas stations. Yeah. And that is why it's so popular or so desired to have a unit close to your town named a national park is it does help the economy quite a bit it does everybody wants to come and see it even though white sands was a national monument i think since the 1930s so for a good long time once it became a national park you know people are um, making a beeline for it and that's actually a good segue to our first question of our mailbag episode. It is a good segue, Matt. Um, This question comes from Renee, and she wrote to us and asked, my husband has a business trip to Albuquerque, New Mexico in March, and we'd like to add on time to visit White Sands. How many days do you recommend for a visit? Yeah, so the the answer to that is more than just the visit to the park itself, because if you're you're in Albuquerque, it's going to take you over three hours just to drive to White Sands. And so what we've always done and what we recommend is you drive to the town of Alamogordo and stay there. Right. It would be a long day trip to drive the three hours down, see the park, drive three hours back. I mean, you could do it because we're going to kind of explain what there is to do in the park. And um, we do think it's a it's no more than a one-day visit, unless, of course, if you're camping and you just want to hang out because you love it, then that's great. But you could see everything in White Sands in a day. Yeah, it's an incredible landscape, but there's not a lot of diversity. Right. Like well, if you hike out on the sands for two, three, four hours, you're just seeing more white sand. And it's a small area that is developed for visitors. So the first thing, obviously, like we always say, is you're going to want to stop in the visitor center. That's your first stop. And then from the visitor center, uh, there is only one road that goes into the park. It's the Dunes Drive, and it's eight miles long. It's a scenic drive that goes from the visitor center right into the heart of the Gypsum Dune Field. And from, from that road, then there are five hikes that you can access. Yeah, one of them is the Inner Dune Boardwalk, Inner Dune. Inner One of them is the Inner Dune Boardwalk. You know, that one's good because it's fully accessible. 
it's not very long. It's a little bit less than half a mile. Uh, you can use wheelchairs and strollers on that. And uh, there's interpretive signs that tell you about the science, the geology, the plants, the animals. So that that's kind of a good starter. Exactly. That's for everybody. Next up is the Playa Trail. It's easy. It's a half a mile round trip. Um, and it's level. It has outdoor exhibits along the way. And so this hike and the, the next three that we're going to talk about, they are all marked with trail markers. These kind of, I think they were metal, weren't they, Matt? Uh, well, metal no, posts? they were, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they had metal in them. They were kind of like big... Very durable plastic things with, yeah, reinforced metal inside of them that just stick up, I don't know, maybe six feet above the sand. And they're brightly colored, which is good. Essentially, when you do these hikes, you're just going from the next trail marker. You can see it off in the distance. And sometimes right. they're, they're pretty far away, but you should be able to see at any point at least two markers, where you came from and where you're going. Right, to keep people from getting lost. And boy, do you need to be paying attention to those markers. Um, so the next trail is the Dune Life Nature Trail. It's moderate. It's a one-mile loop hike, and this one has the blue trail markers. Yeah, and then there's the Backcountry Camping Trail. It's considered moderate. It's about two miles round trip, and that's the orange trail markers. And the last hike in the park, so again, there are only five hikes. The last hike we're going to mention is the Alkali Flat Trail, which, by the way, is not flat. It's considered strenuous. It's five miles round trip, and it has the red trail markers. I don't think the elevation changes. It's just you're going up and down the dunes, and I don't know what that's that is maybe... 50 to 100 feet up and 50 to 100 feet down. And by the time you go up and down all these dunes in the course of five miles, you'll feel like you've climbed a mountain. And we did the Alkali Flat Trail. We really enjoyed it. One thing that I really liked about hiking in white sands is that First of all, the sand does not get as hot as like the sand in Great Sand Dunes, for instance. So you could, if you wanted to, we're not suggesting it, but you could walk barefoot. I think, Matt, you did part of it in flip-flops <laughs> for a while. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that it's kind of relaxing and fun to go barefoot. But, you know, five miles in sand, unless you are really accustomed to going barefoot. I mean, that's that's kind of abrasive on your feet. Sure. I wouldn't even recommend flip-flops for too long. Yeah, I like having socks and hiking boots, even though you feel like you're on the beach and, you know, hiking boots are kind of cumbersome, but it does protect your feet. Yes, definitely. And the other thing I thought, the sand was a little more hard packed. I just remember like at Great Sand Dunes and other places we've hiked where Every step, the sand is sort of caving in on your feet and filling your boots. And I, I thought that it wasn't um, it wasn't like that as much as white sands. You know, it was just well, a little more compact. A little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're still walking through sand. Um, now, Renee, we should issue a warning, as the park does to all visitors. I don't know how hot it will be in March when you're visiting. Hopefully, the temperatures will be mild. But they stress that... Do not start any hike in the park if the temperature is at or above 85 degrees. Yeah, and it gets hotter out there, and the, and the temperature can, can increase um, pretty quickly. And uh, there are people who have gone out on, on the dunes and gotten into real trouble uh, physically uh, due to heat. Again, it's not like these hikes are exhausting, but 
I mean, hiking through sand takes a lot more energy than it looks. You're exerting yourself. And if people haven't properly hydrated before the hike, I mean, those those three things in combination can get you into real trouble if, if you're not careful. And of course, there's zero shade out there. Um, so there's no place to get away from the sun once you're a mile or two or three from your car. Anyway, so just, you know, use good sense, take lots of water, and it is it is a really amazing park. We loved it there. Uh, one thing we didn't do that a lot of people do is they, they go sledding on the dunes. Yeah, that would be a fun thing. I guess you can do that pretty successfully. I mean, it's not exactly like snow. It's not as slick as snow, but it seems like there are a lot of people do it and kids are having a lot of fun out there. It does. It looks really fun. Um, I'm just wondering if like adult bodies are too heavy, if it's more of a kid thing or if we would just be Pro- Probably. <laughs> Dogs and kids can sled. <laughs> the visitor center does sell the sledding discs, so it's not something you have to bring with you. And then I think that they also buy them back from you at the end of the day if you are done but double check that in the visitor center so that would be a great thing to do as well and it's also a great place to watch sunrise and sunset so that would also be another reason maybe to stay at the town of Alamogordo, which is only, like we said, 20 minutes away. Yes, we did not stay for sunset. And I regret that because I've seen photos and, um, you know, when the sky turns all pink and it looks incredibly beautiful. This is one of those parks that closes in the evening and they're very strict about that. So currently in December, the hours are 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. But as the days get longer, then they extend that closure from 6 to 7 to 8. And then in the summer, the the latest time that they're open is 9 p.m. And one other thing we learned when we were there, and, and you'll have to check this out for yourself because it, it may have changed, but there were a couple of months in the spring where no alcohol was allowed oh, that's in right. the park because <laughs> given the proximity of the park to a few colleges in the area, college kids would come there for spring break and it'd be a, a, a party scene bigger than the the park service could really manage and so they just said you know we're not we're not allowing that for a couple of of months so that's something to keep in mind also if you're planning a trip there well right because if you're if she's going in march then that's probably it might be spring break time i'm not sure march or april yeah yeah. you could probably find out on the park website or just Mm -hmm. just call the visitor center yeah talk to a ranger the other thing i would love to do is there is a backcountry campground However, it's closed right now. I guess they are redoing it. But wouldn't it be fun to sleep on the dunes and yeah, see the would, stars at night? Yeah. And if you did yeah. that, though, the temperature change is going to be a lot. Because the sand is not holding any any of that heat. So it could get cool at night. Yes. So, Renee, definitely, definitely go see White Sands. It's amazing. And get a hotel reservation in Alamogordo. And, yeah, you'll have a great time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful park. Are you still searching for a perfect gift for that person on your list who has everything? No matter whether they're adventuring out in the cold or surfing the web on their couch, a Rumple Blanket is a great gift for everyone. Rumple Blankets are weather-resistant, durable, warm, and cozy. And you'd never know that the 100% recycled 30D polyester ripstop fabric is made from discarded plastic bottles. Rumpel offers 17 beautiful national park designs from Acadia to Zion. And as a member of 1% for the Planet, they're proud to support the work of the National Park Foundation, the official nonprofit partner to the National Park Service. 
A rumple blanket is a gift that your recipient will feel good using and you'll feel good giving. And our listeners can save 15% by using the code DEAR at checkout. That's D-E-A-R. So hurry over to their website and shop their blankets and other gift ideas while you still have time. www.rumple.com. That's R-U-M-P-L. Okay, Karen, what is our next question? Our next question comes from Pam in Springfield, Missouri, and she wrote, We are planning a weekend trip to Hot Springs National Park. What are all the things we should do and see while we're there? <laughs> That's funny because we get so many questions that are that end exactly like that sentence. What are all the things we should do or see in the park? Right. Okay, so, And well, we've never done an episode on Hot Springs National Park. I don't think we've ever talked about it before, have we? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> this is now episode 102. Um, it's funny, though, that you mentioned that because there are a lot of times we think we never did an episode on it or talked about it. And then we find like we've talked about it three or four times. So if, if you haven't been there before, Hot Springs National Park is in the town, literally in the town of Hot Springs, Arkansas, which has a population of about 38,000 people. So it's not a huge town. No, it's cute, too. Very historic buildings. Cute town. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it grew a lot based on the popularity of the hot springs and becoming a national park. Yes. So the park gets its name from the naturally thermal spring waters that are found there. I guess they flow out of the ground at an average temperature of 143 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't know that until I I read that. That's pretty warm. That is hot. (laughs) Yeah. And at a million gallons a day. That's a lot of hot water. I know. Yeah. Uh, And because of that, this area is called the American Spa of the 20th Century. And the main attraction there are the eight historic bathhouses on Bathhouse Row. That's right. But Matt, before we talk about what to do, I think that this really needs a history channel. I was going <laughs> to ask you uh, if you had if you knew anything about the history of the area and maybe the history of the national park and the, and the bathhouses. Do you have any information for us? So Pam, I know you didn't ask for the history of the area. No one asked for the history. <laughs> Karen, we 102 episodes. No one has yet asked for the history. This is true. I'll give you that. But you can't really talk about the bathhouses unless you know why the bathhouses are there. So let me tell you why the bathhouses are there. Okay, so the History Channel. Native Americans called this area the Valley of the Vapors. That's kind of a cool name. It should be Valley of the Vapors National Park, don't you think? I'm sorry. (laughs) Have you tuned out already? I didn't know that there would be questions. Well, at least act like you're listening. Yes. Yes to whatever you just asked me. And the hot springs were a neutral territory where all these different tribes could enjoy its healing waters in peace. Then the Spanish and French settlers claimed the area in the mid-1500s, and it became a U.S. territory in 1803 as part of the Louisiana Purchase. So the first permanent settlers to reach the hot springs area in 1807 realized the spring's potential as a health resort. So by the 1830s, they went into business. They had built rustic log cabins and a store to meet the needs of visitors coming to the hot springs. 
again, didn't know that I would have to add color commentary to the history segment. Okay, I will continue then. Here's what's really interesting. In 1832, President Andrew Jackson signed the first law in history to preserve land for recreational purposes. And back then, it was called a federal reservation because, of course, there were no national parks in 1832. And so the land, now known as Hot Springs National Park, became a Hot Springs Reservation. So Yellowstone National Park may have the official designation as the nation's first national park, but Hot Springs was the first federally protected land 40 years before that. That's fascinating. Now, unfortunately, just as Hot Springs Reservation was established as a government property, a devastating fire swept up the valley, and it destroyed most of the south and central downtown areas. The structures that burned, however, were in rough condition, and many townspeople considered the Great Fire of 1878 to be a blessing because it cleared the way for new construction. So after the fire, the government established strict standards for bathhouse construction, and the area rapidly changed from a rough frontier town to an elegant spa city. And so it began. The new Victorian bathhouses built between 1880 and 1888 were larger and more luxurious than could have ever been dreamed of 10 years earlier. And they built roads and paths for the convenience of all the visitors that they knew would come. Then, between 1912 and 1923, the wooden Victorian bathhouses uh, built in the 1880s were replaced with fire-resistant brick and stucco, and several of them had marble walls and billiard rooms and gymnasiums and beautiful stained glass windows. And finally, Bathhouse Row was completed when the Lamar Bathhouse opened its doors for business in 1923. And these bathhouses, all of which are still standing today, then ushered in a new age of spa luxury spa luxury for 1923 right right because we went i thought it looked like alien autopsy <laughs> okay you well know? we'll get to that in a minute <laughs> i have one more thing to say right. <laughs> wasn't quite done <laughs> when the national park service was finally established in 1916 Hot Springs Reservation came under its administration, and Stephen T. Mather, head of the NPS, took a very serious interest in the development of the site. He loved Hot Springs. I know, and he went there so often, and he, he liked them so much. A lot of people think that that was the main reason that this area was, became a national park, partially out of a thank you to him because he did so much for the Park Service bought land with his own money, donated it to the federal government. And so, you know, this was his favorite place. So, yeah, yes. let's, let's make it a national park. Right. His enthusiasm led to its designation as our 18th national park in 1921. So I guess, Matt, that uh, Stephen Mather could be considered the father of Hot Springs National Park, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, I, th I think that's pretty well thought of that mm -hmm. it was it was because of his enthusiasm that, right. it, that it became a national park. Right. Now, sadly, the story takes a little turn for the worse. By the 1960s, the bathing industry in the park had declined considerably. On Bathhouse Row, the eight grand bathhouses that had been thriving since their construction, uh, they started suffering from the decline. And by 1985, all of the bathhouses had closed except for Buckstaff. 
Yeah, you got to maintain the bathhouses. You can't <laughs> you can't let them fall into decline. I know. It does have a happy ending, though. Um, Bathhouse Row was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1974. And the local citizens led a campaign to revitalize these vacant buildings. Uh, their biggest concern, they wanted to save the most elegant of all, the Fortis, or is it Fordyce? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would guess it's Fordyce. Fordyce, okay. Yeah. And so now, consequently, the Fordyce bathhouse is now the visitor center and the museum. And the good news is, today, nearly all of the bathhouses have been renovated and revitalized. All right, so full circle. Full circle, and so that is basically what you see when you go visit Hot Springs National Park. You see Bathhouse Row, and you go to some of the bathhouses that are open to the public. Should we talk specifically about what to do, Matt, since, yeah, that, was, so, since that was Pam's question? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to my world, Pam. <laughs> Just ignore the first 20 minutes of any answer to a question. <laughs> yeah, so what what to do at Hot Springs National Park? Well, you start with, Karen, as we do always. You go to the visitor center, and they converted the Fordyce bathhouse to the park visitor center. And so there's a self-guided tour there. It shows you the history of bathing, um, some of the devices, uh, some of the bathtubs. And I think this is where they conducted the alien autopsies (laughs) in the Fort Ice bathhouse. Yeah, it was a little strange, I have to say, walking through these spa areas where people used to go for their treatments because there were some really weird contraptions. Some of the equipment had fallen into decline. Well, for instance, there were bathtubs, the old clawfoot bathtubs. But, and no offense against the park, but there were like big stains in them, like brown stains. They were, they looked dirty. I'm sure they weren't dirty. They were oh, just sure. old. No, they had minerals from, from the right. hot, hot springs. Right. You know, some of, in uh, the original tile that's on the floor and the walls was, you know, again, looked kind of dirty and chipped. And then there were like, there was this room of these stainless steel tables all in a row. It looked like a morgue. Yeah. You're really selling it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, so don't spend a lot of time at the visitor center. Yeah, I mean, you can still see the beautiful stained glass windows, and I think there are like three or four levels, and I know, so you can see the gymnasium in there, and you can peek into what was once the beauty parlor. So it is a peek into the past, right? Mm-hmm. Into this golden era of bathing. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm only laughing golden because... Golden era, the, the brown era of, of bathing. <laughs> I'm only laughing because you hate baths now. And so to see a museum we of bathing is We don't have enough time to talk about why I hate baths. <laughs> because you don't think people should sit in their own dirt, I th- dirty well, water. I think we need to bring it back up to the glory times. With the full, remember, we were full circle. Back to... Okay, you're right. Yeah. Okay, so once you see the Fordyce bathhouse... You could move on to the two bathhouses that are now acting as spas, so to speak. Uh, One of them is the Quapaw Bathhouse. Karen, I see here on the outline that kids under 14 are not allowed. Why is that? I do not know. But if you are 14, you better uh, bring an ID so you can get in. 
and your swimsuit. Clothing is not optional. That's right. So the Quapaw Bathhouse has public thermal pools. And I did see a photo, and they actually look really nice, like multiple pools. Um, so yeah, that would be a fun thing to do. They also have private baths that you can pay to soak in. That, <laughs> you can't even read it. You can't even read your own notes without laughing. You get a 20-minute soak and a 10-minute cool down. <laughs> Sorry. What if you want a 10-minute soak and a 20-minute cool down? Oh, no. And on those private baths, clothing is optional. So you can do whatever you want in there. <laughs> Now, what I think would be cool to do is apparently they have a steam cave there. So this is a small man-made cave created during the construction of the building, and it surrounds the spring, and it allows the radiant heat from the flowing water to gather in the room, and it's about a six-person capacity. Now, unfortunately, Pam, it's currently closed to COVID. You know, you might double-check that. I don't know when they're going to reopen, but I think it'd be kind of cool to go into a steam cave. And you can take your 14 and a half year olds to that? Uh, I'm not sure about that, probably. Okay. But again, it's on the website. And by the way, these bathhouses, the Quapaw and the one we're going to talk about now, the Buckstaff, they have their own websites. These are not run by the National Park Service. These, I guess, are privately owned. And we should say, we're, we're not paid to uh, give these promotional <laughs> com- oh, you comments. Think people might think we're getting paid for this. Yeah, just in case people think that, like, oh, yeah, they're getting paid to say all this stuff. We're not. We are not at all. Now, the Buckstaff Bath is the only bathhouse, as you remember from History Channel, that never closed. It has been open continuously since it was built. They offer manicures and facials, but they're known for their traditional bathing package, which is a full thermal treatment. Stop you're, you're on your own. Okay. You so are gonna, on your own. I'm going to explain for, what this For the is. rest of it. Okay. So here's what you got. You get a 20-minute tub bath where your bath attendant, and yes, you have a bath attendant, will scrub your arms, legs. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Again, well, not getting paid for this. We'll scrub. <laughs> okay. We'll scrub your arms, legs, and back to improve your circulation. <laughs> okay. You haven't even gotten to the funny part yet. You know. Then there's a sits tub, which is used. <laughs> then there is a sits tub, which is used to treat. <laughs> I'm sorry, ma'am. We're not going to go with you as okay. the uh, narrator of our History Channel episodes anymore. We're okay. going to go in a different direction. I know. I'm, I'm flunking my audition. Okay. Then there is a sits tub that is used to treat your lower back problems and your hemorrhoids. <laughs> why, why, does, why does it say 10 minutes? <laughs> the sits tub is you get 10 minutes in the sits tub. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. and Because people would stay there so long. Probably. And then there is the hot pack treatment. So four packs are to be placed on the customer as directed by the customer. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put my $20 bill back in my wallet here. <laughs> Then there is the vapor cabinet that they will put you in. Now this is <laughs> now this is not recommended for first time bathers. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, this is not recommended for first-time bathers due to the high temperature. I guess it's 145 degrees in there with 100% humidity. And I did see that you have two options, one where your head is inside it and one where your head is outside it. Okay, and then I think last but not least, they clean you up with a needle shower given at the end of the bathing portion. It's a two-minute rinse that hits you from the sides to remove the mineral salts produced by the bathing treatment. And one thing to note, I did hear from somebody who had done this that all through this um, circuit, and you are led by your bathing attendant, you are buck naked. So maybe that's why it's called the buck staff. The guy's name is buck naked. (laughs) No, you are buck naked. So it did say on their website, when you sign up for a full thermal treatment, you are stepping into an adventure. I, (laughs) I don't even need to say anything, do I? So apparently adventure in Hot Springs National Park is a little different than, let's say, adventure in Zion National Park. I guess. But you know what you could do after all of this, the sits bath thing and somebody else scrubbing your arms and legs? Now it's time to go to the brewery. I know. One of the bathhouses, the Superior Bathhouse, is a brewery. How cool is that? That is cool. And they used all the same uh, metal tubs from, <laughs> no, they didn't. from the days of yore uh, to brew their beer. <laughs> no, but it's a cool story because the Superior was built in 1916 and then it closed in 1983. And it was vacant for 30 years until the current owner wanted to turn it into a craft brewery with a full service family friendly restaurant. And after signing the lease from the Department of the Interior, they started construction in late spring of 2013. And now the Superior Bathhouse is home to the only brewery in a U.S. national park. And that was not too long after we visited. Yeah. It wasn't there when we visited. No, I think we visited in 2012. So we missed it by a year. Also, what's cool about it, it's the only brewery in the world to utilize the thermal spring water in their beer. Hmm. Okay, great. <laughs> I so would we like, have a reason to go back. I know. I would love to go back and have a beer at the brewery. I also heard their root beer is really good for all the people out there who don't like beer. And yeah, they have a, they have a full menu. So you can get you know burgers or whatever to eat. All right. So Karen, I know you did the research on this. Are there any hiking trails in the park? What, what do we have in terms of hiking trails? I just know that there are hiking trails. A few, few, right. There are some listed on, there are two different areas. They're listed on the park website. So Pam, if you get some nice weather, just know that there are some hiking trails you want to stretch your legs and ask at the Fordyce Visitor Center about that and where you can go for a hike. All right. So there you go. That's all we know. I'm sure there are other things. You know, the town is cute. You could explore the town over part of the weekend. Um, Lots of historic buildings, lots of nice people. So yeah, a completely different park than all the others. Very unique. We probably just lost our marketing contract with the (laughs) bathhouses, but (laughs) that's, we just got to tell it like it is. So Pam, we hope you have a great weekend. 
Okay, Karen, do we have any more questions? We do. We have um, we have some questions from a listener named Brian. Now, he left these questions as part of a review, which was very nice. And I'll just read part of his review. First of all, it started with 100 stars. So thank you for that, Brian. Um, and he wrote, my name is Brian, and I am 11 years old. This podcast is very amazing and started making me love national park sites. I have some topics that I was wondering if you could put in some episodes. Question number one, have you been to Turkey Run and Hocking Hills State Park? We have not. I don't think we knew about those parks. I'm not familiar with Turkey Run. I looked that up. That's in Indiana. Now, Hocking Hills State Park, we have had people in Ohio mention it to us as an amazing state park that's not too far from Cuyahoga Valley. That's true. Now, now that you say that, we have had more than one listener uh, mention that. So, Right. Uh, yeah, no, we haven't gotten there yet. No, but I would like to do that. And for anybody visiting Cuyahoga, I think that would be a great add-on because, you know, as we have talked before about our country's state parks, there are some phenomenal state parks out there. Yeah, the more we're going to state parks, the more surprised we are at some of the fantastic natural wonders, landscapes, history. So yeah, great state parks out there. We just, uh, we have not been to these two. Okay, second question is, what is the best park you have been to? Oh man, we get this question all the time. We love Yellowstone, Mm -hmm. Glacier National Park. We kind of look at our favorite experiences Uh, Some of the great hikes, probably our best experience of all of our national park travels was seeing the brown bears in Katmai National Park. We've talked about that before. But it's hard to say which one we like the most. Right. And of course, for everybody, it depends on your experience there. You know, maybe um, maybe when you're there, it's pouring rain and it's foggy and you don't get to do the things that you wanted to do. So you have a different experience than, than your neighbor who was just there. Yeah, I think overall, Yellowstone, for me, has the most variety of landscape features. So you've got, you know, all the the thermal features, you've got the mountains and the lakes and all of that. And then the incredible wildlife. It has to have the most diverse wildlife of any park. Yeah, that's true. One of the things I like about Yellowstone is it was never tamed. It's always been wild. When they protected that area, it hadn't been civilized. And you're seeing these wild animals in this wild place the way it, it always has been. It's an amazing place. And Brian, when you go to Yellowstone, you know, it's a huge park and there are a lot of areas to see. Most of the crowds seem to flock to the Old Faithful area, which which is amazing. And you absolutely should see that. But be sure you go up to Lamar Valley and go all the way up to the very northeast corner of the park because that does not see as many people. And you've got so many possible wildlife sightings up there from the bison who hang out there to wolf packs, and of course, grizzly bears also. And sometimes you'll drive through the Lamar Valley and you'll think, well, the bison are kind of far away and they move quite a bit. So if they're not right by the road, if you sit in one spot long enough, they'll come closer to you. And also for the best wildlife sightings, you want to try to go early in the morning or in the evening at dusk. It's much better than midday. So just a tip there. Um, Okay, so then the third question, the third and last question, Brian asked, what are the top seven best national parks on the East Coast? So, Brian, it kind of depends on how you define the East Coast. 
you know, how far inland you yeah, want to go. Right. And if we're talking about national park, national parks, uh, national park service sites that are named national parks, there's there's really only five. There's Acadia. So that's in Maine. There's Shenandoah in Virginia. Congaree, which is in South Carolina. And then you have Biscayne, Everglades, and Dry Tortugas. Those three are in Florida. Virgin Islands is further east, <laughs> right? So it's in the, the Caribbean. Right. Uh, so those are some of them. And of course, if you want to expand the definition to National Park Service units, there's just tons of battlefields and a oh, bunch, sure. bunch of sites. Seashores. Yeah. yeah. Brian capitalized National Parks, so I'm thinking that's what he was referring to. So just touching on those briefly... You know, those are all really interesting, great parks to visit because they're all so different and they all feature something unique. But in my opinion, and we can both talk about this map, but in my opinion, I think of an all-around park, I think Acadia um, would be my top pick in those five, just because in Acadia, you could literally spend days there doing hikes and you've got the incredible ocean and coastline there and you could ride bikes on the carriage roads and climb up Cadillac Mountain. There there are a, enough things to do where you could spend multiple days there. Yeah, and you have... Uh, some civilization there. You see, you have the town of Bar Harbor, mm-hmm. which has plenty of places to stay, great restaurants, and it's close to the national park. So it's kind of a place where if you were there for three days to a week, there's plenty to do. Yes. Uh, whereas some of these others, they're fantastic also. Dry Tortugas is an incredible park, very, very unique, but it's kind of hard to get to. I think it's kind of a, a day trip. Right. It's a day trip to Fort Jefferson. Amazing. And then, of course, we did an episode on Everglades, so you know everything we talked about there. Biscayne is a beautiful water park, and to see it, you absolutely have to get on the water in some way. We took a boat tour to um, Boca Chita Key, which was okay. I wish we would have rented some, you know, kayaks ourselves and gotten on the water. That's what I would suggest people do. Yeah, it's def- definitely a water park. Definitely. Um, and, of course, Shenandoah is beautiful. Lots of hikes um, and that gorgeous drive along Blue Ridge Parkway. And Congaree is a very interesting ecosystem. What is it? A watershed? Uh, it's not a swamp. Don't call it a swamp. <laughs> Although it used to be called old a swamp. bottom, uh, bottomless growth. <laughs> old. Okay, you're, oh, now, you're, now, now you're making it up. Old growth bottomland hardwood forest. That's what it is. And to see that ecosystem is incredible, right? It's it's great, but it's also. It's not multiple days. Right. And again, I think you absolutely want to get out on the creek in a boat. Otherwise, you know, there is a boardwalk trail. It was a cool hike, but there's not much to do. So we have talked in an episode before about we went on the ranger-led boat tour on the creek. It was phenomenal. We saw all kinds of wildlife that live in the park. So if you're going to go to Congaree, try to schedule it around a boat tour. Okay, so Brian, thank you. Thank you for the review. We appreciate it. And um, yes, happy exploring the national parks. That's right. Thank you for the 100 stars. Yes. All right. So is that it? We just wanted to mention briefly. So we have been promoting our book, Dear Bob and Sue, during the holidays as a great Christmas gift for people. And we get asked a lot if our book is appropriate for kids. Yeah, that's an interesting question because we didn't write it for kids. No. I mean, we wrote it for 
adults and, right. and people who are considering going to the national parks. And, and quite frankly, a lot of our descriptions of what we did and how we visited these parks was intended as much to show people how not to do it as how to do it. We, sure. we talk about the mistakes we made, right? Yeah. Uh, so it was just kind of a we feel authentic uh, recounting of, of how we visited the parks. So we didn't have kids in mind when we wrote it. You know, it has a little bit of colorful language, no, no swearing in it. And it has no nudity, violence, or gore. <laughs> nudity. <laughs> well, it's just a printed book. There are oh, no, okay, there's, there's no, no pictures. pictures so. Right, true. Yeah, interesting because we've had, we had an email from a listener named Katie, and she's eight years old, and she read our book. And then Brian, in his review, mentioned that he had read our book. He's 11. So, so there are kids reading our book. I think the answer is it kind of depends on your child. And their maturity level and what kind of books they read, what they're interested in, because, of course, every kid is different. Yeah, there's some dry humor. Well, there's a lot of dry humor. I mean, if you've heard any of our podcast episodes and read any of our books, you know that, uh, you know, maybe not all of the jokes, the intended jokes that people fully understand. And, and so those might be hard for kids to understand, like, what we're joking about. And, and some of the banter between a couple you know, a married couple going to the parks, we're kind of making fun of each other. And that's the kind of stuff people do when they're traveling. I don't know if kids pick up on that. Maybe they do. I don't know. I will say, though, that we had a review on Amazon years ago where a woman said she was shocked at the foul language. <laughs> foul language. <laughs> and okay, so here's the explanation for that. There are no swear words, I don't think any in the book. I, I don't no. think so. But what she was referring to, I, I can only imagine, is the use of, uh, for instance, we talked about there was a part of it where I was worried that our son-in-law uses his laptop on his lap, and I said something about he might be cooking his testicles. Yeah, and that's um, just still 10 years later. That's weird that you yes. you would say that. <laughs> and you said something about there was a cave named Put Your Scrotum in a Vice Cave. And yeah, yeah. so Okay, actually, now that you say it like that. Right, and a guy had the world's smallest penis. Well, so. may, yeah, maybe it is written for kids because only – Immature adults would write stuff like that. So yeah, if if you're uh, maybe eleven or twelve, this is right up your alley. <laughs> maybe we're you want to be maybe immature we, forever. Read all of our books. Maybe we have missed the marketing boat. Maybe That's we right. need to market it to middle schoolers. Yeah, sophomores in high school. <laughs> if you want to be a knucklehead forever, uh, <laughs> learn to to talk like Matt Smith. Now. Uh, <laughs> I, I do remember when we wrote the Dear Bob and Sue book that we were intentionally, I was intentionally keeping the sentence structure simple, the writing light, because we wanted it to be a light and easy, humorous book. Uh -huh. And I re remember keeping the reading level at grade six, because there's a way you can you can test that in, in Microsoft Word based on the complexity of the sentences and the vocabulary you use. And, and sixth grade reading level, it's not that it's not for adults, but it's easier to read. Right. And as people know who have read the book, it's uh, very short emails about the different parks. So it's easy to pick up and put down if you only want to read for five minutes or if you want to read for 20 minutes. There are stopping points along the way as we switch to a different park. So anyway, that's the answer. I guess it is for kids, just depending on your kid. But I think it's great, actually, that 
kids are reading our book and also that I know families are listening to the audio book in their car on road trips. And that's cool, too. That's right. We have, we have heard quite a few people say that their youngins want to hear Bob and Sue. Okay. All right. So that is it for today's mailbag. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you. And we're so grateful that you all keep coming back. As a matter of fact, we just hit our one millionth download. So thank you, all of you out there. Yes. Unless there's one person out there who's downloaded <laughs> a million our, times. our episodes one million times. <laughs> we'll take it. Now, if you didn't know, we now have a Patreon account. And for just $5 a month, you can help support this podcast financially. There is a backlog of bonus content waiting for you. We have both audio episodes and some video episodes. Yeah, we just released an episode about our anniversary trip to Victoria, B.C., where we talk about some of the fun things to do there, just a ferry ride away from Olympic National Park. And you can find the link to our Patreon account on our website at www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. All right, that's all from us. You know, Matt, I have a hankering to go take a bath. Will you scrub my arms and legs? <laughs> no. <laughs> How about my back? <laughs> uh, all right.